Public Interest News Foundation launched earlier this year and recently gained charitable status. On this episode of the Media Law Podcast, we talk to the Foundation's founder, Jonathan Haywood, to find out what it's all about. Hello, listener, and welcome to the Media Law Podcast. I'm Tom Bennett. We're talking about public interest journalism this time out. And we uh, sat down for an interview with the founder of the Public Interest News Foundation, Jonathan Haywood, the other day. And without further ado, this is what we talked about. So I'm joined uh, today uh, by uh, Paul Rag. Hi, Paul. Hi, Tom. And uh, also by Jonathan Haywood, who is uh, founder of the Public Interest News Foundation. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Tom. Hi, Paul. Good to be speaking to you today. So the Public Interest News Foundation, I think, is an exciting development. Um, And it was recently awarded charitable status. We'll uh, touch on that shortly. Um, but Jonathan, can I ask, start by asking you, um, what is this Public Interest News Foundation and uh, uh, what is it for? Mm. Well, it's a good question. I mean, um, I can answer it in two ways. I can tell you a little bit about what we're currently doing and I can tell you a bit about the background to why we, um, why we want to do that. So what we're doing so far, we're very early days, it's really in startup mode but we've been been active for about six months now in fact went went live on the first of march and then within within three weeks we were all working from home like the rest of the country and um i've, I've remained working from home so i'm down here in sussex but then i've got you know, you know members of the team of dotted around the country and what we've been doing is supporting smaller what we would call independent public interest news publishers across the uk so that's a blend of organisations, many of them set up on a non-profit basis, but not all. Some are small commercial businesses, some are run as cooperatives. Some of them are doing very classic local journalism in, in print in some cases, but primarily online. They're mostly organisations that have been set up within the last five or ten years, but some are much older. One we worked with was the Cumberland and Westmoreland Herald that was set up in 1860 and still publishes a weekly broadsheet newspaper in the in the northwest of England. Um, but then the sector also includes um, uh, kinds of what you might call community-based journalism, but not necessarily a geographical community. So there are sites like Galdem, which is, um, as it says on the masthead, by and for um, women and non-binary people of colour was set up within the last three years um, and then you've got sites like the ferrets in scotland which is a very much investigative um, news organization and then there's a final category of what i would call values-based sites like um, there's an organization we worked with called planet based in wales um, which is all around um, sort of environmentalism and climate justice and so on so it's this what what so the, the the broad definition is the independent public interest news sector, small organizations doing public interest journalism of those various kinds and essentially filling gaps which um which the market or public service broadcasting have left 
and in some cases reaching audiences that might otherwise be unreached. And what we've been doing so far is a providing a bit of financial assistance to some of those publications. We ran a, an emergency grant scheme in May when the first wave of, of lockdown was, was was having a very negative impact, obviously on these small organisations. And then off the back of that, the the the, um, the organisations that we supported with small relief grants. We've also been running a leadership development program for those publishers over the summer and into the autumn, where we've been working with them to try to develop their um, their sort of skills and and capacity to to run their organisations and, and take them forward in what is a very very difficult climate. Um, what sort of things does that leadership development involve, and does it relate directly to uh, the regulatory? Uh, matters surrounding the media because of course I know you from your involvement with Impress, the voluntary regulator. Um, so is is it focused on uh, regulation or is it a, a broader leadership scheme? Um, it's broader so but it's a, it's a good point and in fact maybe it helps to explain a bit about the genesis of, of the Public Interest News Foundation or Hint, which, which did emerge out of my work with Impress. So over the years as I think you know, Impress has developed um, a particular role regulating these smaller news providers across the UK. And Impress now regulates, I think, over 150 publications um, in that sector. And what I found over the last couple of years in particular was as we sort of developed our relationships and experience working with these small publishers, it seemed really clear that Impress was offering something valuable to them. It was helping to, to, to ensure their professional standards, to resolve complaints and legal disputes, and thereby to give them some badge of, of trustworthiness and credibility that I think they found helpful with um, some of their audiences. But there were so many other issues that are clearly really pressing on them. So in 2019, we pulled together what we called the Independent Publishers Task Force to look at some of those wider challenges, the things that Impress wasn't really designed to address. Things like, how do you actually generate enough revenue to cover the costs of producing public interest journalism? How do you um, develop um, a really trusting, genuinely open relationship with your audience? So, you know, being regulated by Impress, I think, is a part of the answer to that question, but it's not the whole answer. There's lots of best practice in, in, the, in the United States, for instance, where there's a really well-developed nonprofit news sector where people are finding different ways of engaging with communities and working out what their information needs are and addressing those in quite, quite novel ways in some cases. Um, so there's a lot of learning out there, which I think these people who've set up these sites or have inherited these, these long-running independent publications in the UK, they were coming to us and through the task force identifying that they would really value a lot more support in, in, in sort of thinking through those challenges. They would certainly value funding, but it seems that as almost equal to the funding, they valued this, what we're now calling leadership development. And the form that that has then taken has been a series of webinars where we've pulled in experts on, uh, you know, subscription models, for instance. So lots of independent websites were set up in the last five or 10 years on the assumption that advertising would pay the bills. And it became really clear in general that advertising wasn't going to pay the bills. 
the marginal returns on advertising, unless you're generating mail online levels of, of hits, the marginal returns just don't, don't cover the costs of actually producing original journalism. So people are moving from an advertising to a reader-based revenue model. So we wanted them to sort of meet some of the leading experts um, in the UK and elsewhere who are helping to develop new platforms for building up subscriptions income, building up membership models, and then some new techniques like podcasting. Lots of small publishers are really keen to do more podcasting. So we, we talked about some of the sort of do's and don'ts of that. Some of the challenges and the fact it can be, you know, you can have a small, very loyal audience, but, but sometimes a small audience doesn't necessarily suddenly take you into, uh, you know, big, big audiences and so on and so forth. So it was a number of, sort of quite specific challenges that the publishers had identified that we worked with them on. I think at the same time, what was going on was that the group was was getting to know each other and there was quite a lot of camaraderie and people were sharing experiences and tips both on the webinars and in the chat and in follow-up emails and on the Slack channel that we opened up for them. Um, so I think the leadership is both enabling those individuals to lead their organisations really well and, and confidently and, and happily, but also sort of developing a bit of leadership across the sector where you start to see this sector having a bit more confidence. And what it's now looking for is a bit more voice. So I think the, the other role that's emerging for us could be helping to helping this independent sector to, to, to convey to policymakers and platforms and donors, look, there may be a crisis in public interest journalism. There may be massive challenges facing some of the legacy corporate press. And there are also challenges facing this sector, but there's also some exciting opportunities where you've got small grassroots organisations that with a bit of support could be doing really exciting things. But that's kind of where we've got to with PIN. Uh, Jonathan, this is, I think this is really fascinating. And of course, it's something that um, uh, I, as as a member of the Impress uh, Code Committee, of course, we've, we've worked uh, closely together in the, uh, in the past. And um, I think you'll be um, incredibly successful um, in this role and, and provide uh, much needed support to, to, especially to many local communities. Um, what I did uh, want to ask you, though, was about... Um, how you define uh, public interest uh, journalism and, and, and whether, you know, this is a very rigorous definition that you apply or, or whether it's a sort of more light touch review uh, that um, that happens. Mm. No, I mean, it's, it's really important. We So we felt that in order for, for PIMP to play the role that publishers were telling us they, they wanted us to play, and bear in mind, as I said, this emerged out of Impress, but it was very clear that it wasn't a role that Impress as an independent regulator could or should play. So we needed to create a new organisation. It kind of span out of Impress, but it is a standalone organisation with its own board of trustees. Yeah. And we mm -hmm. felt that, you know, in order for us to raise to raise funding and also for us to have kind of credibility that we wanted to have, it felt right to be a charity. Now, there's a long history in this country of people trying to get charitable status for journalism-related organisations. And the Charity Commission, which is the regulator for charities in England and Wales, there's a different body in Scotland, but the Charity Commission 
um, has always been really, really anxious about charitable journalism. And the basic threat that I think it perceives is a kind of opening the floodgates threat, where if they say that journalism is charitable per se, simply because it is journalism or someone self-defines as producing journalism, then how on earth do you subsequently draw a line and say, well, okay, this this community-based newspaper which produces sort of accurate, reliable, impartial coverage of local events is charitable. But this website over here, which is highly partisan and publishes a degree of misinformation and endorses conspiracy theories, etc., isn't charitable. The charity commission themselves didn't didn't seem to have the confidence or the, or the kind of the the, the 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 sort of legal or conceptual framework to to to, to, to be confident they could draw the line so in order for us to get charitable status we had to sort of draw the line for them so we we did set out quite a detailed definition it's in our articles um, of association of public interest news now this is not necessarily you know you and i can talk about this and we you know we might both feel this is not a definitive articulation of public interest news in all cases but it's the definition that we needed to put forward to reassure the Charity Commission that PIMP yeah. itself would not be you know, supporting those who are wild or extremes. So the key, the key aspect of that is that in our definition, we, PIMP is only um, mandated to support impartial journalism. So obviously that immediately does cut out a lot of what might be public interest in, in the broader sense, journalism which is clearly motivated or characterized by a partisan commitment to one or another political position so we have said that public interest news i'm not quoting verbatim but broadly that it's um, journalism produced to a high ethical standard so to that extent it would be journalism that meets the you know follows the impress code or, or the ipso editors code but on top of that which is impartial and as you know the impress code allows publications to be partisan mm. and which um, enables people to engage with um, with democratic processes or to engage with the life of their communities so that's the sense of um, public interest journalism isn't just yeah book reviews or, or gardening tips or crosswords <laughs> or knitting patterns, you know, it's it's something which provides something which we might think of as the sort of, you know, the 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 the, the meat and drink of the of the public sphere. It's it's yeah. telling us what's going on. So although it's required to be politically impartial, that doesn't mean it it can't do politics. It very much can. So we that's one of the I think I think actually quite important things about the definition that I'm I'm quite pleased with is that we have established and it is charitable to do political or investigative journalism so long as it's done in a kind of ethical and impartial way and then finally the other the other aspect of the definition which is a kind of an or aspect rather than an and you know what i mean so it can it can meet those characteristics or it can be journalism which um advances another charitable purpose and that's also quite helpful so that means that for instance, you know, protecting the environment is a charitable purpose. So if you're yeah. producing journalism that is advancing environmental standards, that can be charitable. 
And that then potentially interplays quite interestingly with the impartiality requirement. So the way we, we understand that, the impartiality requirement is a political, you know, classic party political impartiality. It should not mean that you have to go down some of the worst rabbit holes of you know, some, some of the, you know, we all know the historic examples of the BBC giving equal airtime to the world's greatest climate scientists and the world's biggest charlatans who are denying climate science. If we yeah. don't think that our definition requires that kind of balance. If you're clearly advancing environmentalism, you don't need to give equal airtime to someone who's denying the foundational tenets of environmentalism because environmentalism is a charitable purpose in itself. Yeah, yeah. I, Can I just ask, Jonathan, before we move on from that, because I'm really interested in the impartiality issue. In, just in terms of the impartiality requirement, leaving aside the advancing other charitable purposes um, point, how in practice would a publication demonstrate to uh, the foundation's satisfaction that it engaged in impartial journalism? That is a really good question. And what, what, what we now need to do, and I might come back to both of you and ask for a bit of help with this, is we do need to now develop some slightly more detailed protocols to, to address precisely that point. I think what you might call kind of indicators, because I think we all have to accept this is not a perfect art, certainly not a science. Mm. Um, there are norms around impartiality, I think you could you could you could you could fairly straightforwardly set out you know if you are reporting on a controversial planning decision that you know that you should at least acknowledge the views of people on both sides of, of the debate so it's not you know, it's not only telling one side of a story um i suppose it's it's you know there's there's other legal requirements which which are also norms i mean there are legal requirements when it comes to issues that might engage with defamation law but nonetheless i think a good good practice even if you're not going into that territory but you know that you put put allegations or concerns or questions to the subject of a story before before publication give them a chance to respond so I think there's a, there's, a, there's a set of principles like that that I think you could fairly easily articulate. But I think, you know, let's be honest, there are going to be outer reaches on that sometimes where it's, you know, it's going to be a question of judgment. And I think looking at the, 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 the output of a, of a site or a, or a paper overall yeah. and trying to understand, is there a clear trend in its reporting, which is clearly sort of favouring one or other side of a political debate. Presumably, Jonathan, in applications as well, you expect the newspaper to make its own case for it, to explain to your satisfaction, or, or you know, not you personally, but Pimp's satisfaction, why the criteria is met. I think both. I think so. I mean, so we did have a bit of experience of this. We, as I said, we ran um, um, what we called an emergency fund in we opened applications in May and, and we, we made the grants in June and we were really keen to run that quickly. There were small grants, there were £3,000 grants and we made 20 of them. So we, we awarded £60,000 in total and that was with funding that we had got from the Joseph Rowntree Reform Trust. Yeah. So it was a kind of experiment in some ways. 
in, in our own grant making processes. And we wanted to move quickly, but we also wanted to be responsible. So the way we did it was to form a selection panel of people with relevant expertise, chaired by Francis Cairncross, who had written the government um, review of press journalism, and then with other leading academics and um, people from in and around the sector. So it's you know, diff different kinds of skills and experience. We received 89 applications for those quite small grants. So that was yeah. just, you know, some indication of the scale of need yeah. um, and the size of the sector. I think that's by no means the entirety of the sector. 89 organisations clearly thought it was worth their while sitting down and writing an application, even for that yeah. modest amount of money. And what we did was to... Um, to kind of to, to, to process that volume of applications, we set out fairly minimal eligibility requirements. So in terms of demonstrating that a site had high standards, high ethical standards of journalism, we took as a proxy that it was a member of one or other regulator. So we had some IPSO members, we had some impressive yeah. members. Um, and where they weren't, we didn't rule them out, but we asked them to tell us a bit more about how they kind of what their ethical standards were and how they were accountable to those standards. And then we had some other requirements which helped us to narrow down a short list about you know providing evidence of having produced public interest journalism in the past and of continuing to produce it in relation to COVID nineteen and the lockdown and of having some vision for the future. So we didn't want to support organisations that were about to fall over tomorrow or that only started yesterday. We wanted to, to, you know, to give people a helping hand that were already in business and wanted to remain in business. And one of the organisations that came through that process was a site called Five Pillars, which is um, aimed at the British Muslim community and which produced you know, quite compelling evidence in its application of public interest journalism about issues affecting British Muslims over recent mm. years, and particularly in relation to COVID. And it had clearly put out some good material, both, both sort of text-based and also video content, where they were really actively dispelling some quite dangerous conspiracy theories about COVID, about where it came from, and about how, um, you know, they were very keen, for instance, to, to communicate to Muslims that if the government says, do not attend your mosque, that you should really take that very seriously. Yeah. So in various ways, they, the, the application certainly showed the selection panel. This was a site that was addressing the needs, the information needs of a, of a specific and in many ways hard to reach audience and doing it in quite a responsible way. So we made they, they were one of those that got through the selection process and we awarded a grant. Subsequently, people came to us with examples of other journalism that Five Pillars had produced over the years, which raised various questions around hate speech, um, allegations of, of homophobia or anti-Semitism, of endorsing conspiracy theories without any demonstrable underpinning of fact, mm. and so on, and sort of you know output which was much harder to square with our definition of public interest in journalism, and which also actually raised issues about their compliance with the Impress Standards Code. So in that case, we then referred um, Five Pillars to Impress. Five Pillars is a member of Impress, mm. and, um, and, we, and we, we put that grant on, on hold, in effect. So that was a learning experience. Um, I think 
in that example, I think what we learned was that, yes, it was right for us to try and move really quickly. But in fact, I think there are, um, you know, there is a need for quite considerable due diligence when you receive an application. And sometimes that is going to require quite a lot of time going back through output. I think also there's more that we could have done that we would do in future of, you know, seeking assurances from publishers that there is nothing, you know, we can't read everything they've ever published. Yeah. That there's nothing, you know, that can they testify? Could they, could they, you know, affirm that there's nothing in their, in their record that would contradict our, our requirements, our values, et cetera. So we can put a bit more onus on them to, to, to affirm that. And then obviously find evidence that that, that affirmation wasn't sound. Then that would give us some some recourse, but it yeah. is yeah, it's going to be it's going to be tricky. We're not going to can't pretend it's going to be really straightforward to do. But I think there's a combination of sort of good process and a bit of judgment. I hope will will get us through. Yeah, I I can yeah I think that, I think that must be right. And I, and I suppose the the important point is that, that um, you were quick to provide the the grant, but also quick to respond once concerns were were raised, so that you could investigate them, and that that must be the appropriate response. I um, hope so. Yeah, and also I should I should say that you know we we were very young at the time as an organisation. We just just launched a couple of months earlier, and we had a very new group of, of trustees that had only just come together. Some of them didn't know each other very well, and we were operating remotely. Yeah, and so we had to sort of leap into action really over a weekend when when we started to receive these 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 complaints and concerns and 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 like you said, some of the papers picked up on this and were ringing up wanting to know what we were doing about it. Yeah, and there was quite a vigorous discussion. I mean, trustees took a range of initial views. There were some who felt, um, you know, that actually this site had a perfect right to 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 to. to to reflect the religious views of its editors and journalists and its audience, and and that the, 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 you know, there were big free speech principles involved. Yeah. Others who thought who thought, oh, this is no, this is this is not what we want to be associated with. But I think what we all agreed ultimately was that we are here for the greater good, and we are trying to leverage more support for these smaller independent sites. Yeah, and to do that, we need to stick to this slightly narrow definition of public interest news and sadly we were seeing evidence that this site didn't meet our definition yeah um, so yeah it was like i say big learning experience yeah absolutely well i have i just have a couple of questions uh, about that although you've explained the five pillars uh situation um very very clearly um and it's it's good to hear your side of it um and to for you to have that opportunity given how biased the press <laughs> the popular press was in its coverage uh, of this story but i suppose what i wanted to ask and what i'm interested in is is how uh the fact that interest groups themselves um can apply for this kind of funding and they don't fall foul of the impartiality uh requirement and i just wondered if you could sort of talk that through a bit more as to as to how interest groups don't fall foul of the impartiality requirement. So you mean an interest group as in something that might be focused on environmentalism or on a particular community? Not not so much environmentalism, because as you've explained, that is a charitable purpose um, of itself. But yeah, an, an interest group, um, I suppose, could could be recognised for, for its educational value. 
um, which of course is a charitable purpose. But um, yeah, interest groups that are are um, advocating uh, a set view of of, of things, um, a set yeah. view of yeah. because there is there is a sort of political leaning uh, underpinning um, such interest groups. Does that cause problems? Presumably not. Um, I think I think it could. No, I think I think I, I think I understand the, the concern that you're you're, you're touching on. Um, I mean, I noticed that there was a blog published the other day by someone who had looked at, at, at PINF and didn't seem to be very keen on the idea of charitable journalism here in in general. I think saw this as a bit of sort of liberal do do goodery, but they also um, they identified Gal Dem as a site that they were not not comfortable with. As I said, I think Gal, Gal Dem declares on the, on its masthead that it's by and for women and non-binary people of colour. And this blogger said, well, that's clearly discriminatory. They're excluding a great swathe of the audience. You couldn't say that another site was by and for white men, for instance. And... Yeah. You know, so I think I think that's going to. I'm assuming that's a variant on the sort of on the theme that you're that you're you're touching on. Um, yeah, I was I was trying to sort of um, not very successfully, and I, I apologise. I'm being incredibly ambiguous. Um, I wondered if your response was going to be about the importance of plurality, because um, we uh we as a as a nation as a democracy um define ourselves by the promotion of plurality the, the different points of view and uh as we know the mainstream press doesn't uh really represent the widest possible range of views our press as a whole can be characterized as essentially right wing and conservative in, in all senses of that word and so I think there's an argument to say that there is a public interest in supporting uh, diverse outlets that uh, address the needs of a particular community that aren't addressed by the mainstream press. Yeah. But that view, I think, challenges this idea of impartiality because for me, impartiality almost speaks to this idea of not pushing a particular viewpoint but simply being sort of passive in a way. I, I, yeah, okay. No, I, I know exactly what you mean. I think, I think, I think that's one of the areas where I think we have to accept there's, there's, there's a certain amount that PINF can do, and there are things that PINF can't do, which are nonetheless important and must be done. So I, I agree that you know that we want a plural media landscape where there are where there are outlets that really represent a very broad range of opinion. You know, I'm, I'm very liberal in that respect. I want to see outlets where people with, with views to the right of centre and the left of centre there are nationalists and internationalists you know i i think they need to have a voice and they need to be have their views articulated i think with certain kind of as it were epistemic requirements about truth telling and maybe some other core standards around that but in in that you know in that we live in a plural society and i think most of those views are better out than in mm-hmm. i want them to form part of the media landscape but yeah. PIN can't support all of them. So yeah. I think, yes, you could you could have a different version of PIN, which perhaps wasn't a charity, and said, you know, that we're going to be much more focused on that broader, the, the sort of macro level of, 
of pluralism. Mm. Um, PIMP can't do all of that. So I think there are some sites and publications that PIMP, you know, wouldn't be able to work with under this yeah. under this framework, and we just have to kind of accept that. But I still think there are there's quite a range that that we can. So I think just to go back to the Galdem example, we did work with them, and to me that seems perfectly legitimate. Yeah. Because they are advancing principles of, 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 of justice and equal treatment and, and non-discrimination. They're advancing that, I think, by giving voice to a group which is otherwise treated very unequally and discriminated against. So I think I think to some extent you can find ways of of, of having a degree of plurality within, let's call it the pin portfolio. But I think there are going to be you know there are there are parameters to that. I think I think conversely, a, a white supremacist, masculinist, uh, you know, incel kind of site, I think, would be very hard to justify. What's 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 the broader public good that you could point to that they would be pursuing? What's well, the social injustice they would be remedying. Yeah, exactly. I, look, I, I I agree with you entirely, and I think that's an uh, that's an excellent point. I suppose my my um, observation about plurality generally, and I do have a view on plurality, and and it's it's a sort of mixed message that we don't need to get into now. But the difficulty is that when we talk about plurality, um, we also live in a society that seems particularly intolerant uh, of offence and offensive speech. And uh, of course, I have problems with that as a as a liberal because I believe that the only kind of speech we should be con- concerned about is hateful speech that actually leads to hateful consequences of yeah. you know, violence and real harm. And that's where your white supremacist group comes into it. They're not sort of trying to say, you know, let's look out for the for the white man um, in a kind of uh, be- because this this species is under threat. There are other groups, though, that could have a sort of white dimension to it. For example, you know, in education, um, there is uh, at university level, there is a a dearth of uh, white male uh, applicants from um, widening participation backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you could have a you could, I think, a website that's sort of pushing that agenda. Mm -hmm. Um, but it but isn't going as far as white power and you know white supremacy exactly. and, and everything else. And I think I think just just to sort of chip in on that, I mean, I do think there's a there's you know I've I've been spending a lot of time recently with philosophers, which you you know you might think was unwise, but it, it's, <laughs> it's fabulous. I yeah. I applaud yeah. that. Yeah, good. Um, um, you know, they do have ways of making you think. Yeah. And um, <laughs> that sounds yeah, slightly yeah. threatening. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um, but it's really helped me to, 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 I think, to see a little bit more clearly, clearly the distinction between, um, you know, advancing a particular set of values and making truth claims. So I think, I think in, the, in these examples, the white supremacists, whether implicitly or es- explicitly, are making a set of truth claims around the the, the relative merits of of different races as defined by skin colour. And those truth claims are not based on any scientific facts. So, you know, they're essentially lying. They may also be making values claims, but 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 there's but there's there's there are, there are epistemic um assertions which are which are I think have to have to be understood as implicit even if they're not explicit in white supremacism. 
in the example of widening access and thinking, okay, there's a group here and we want to encourage them into spaces in which they may have been excluded. And we're doing that because we believe in having a, a society of equals or people with equal opportunities at least. I don't think there's a dubious truth claim there. There seems to be a very solid truth claim. And in order to, to advance that, that widely understood public good, we need to give that group a bit more representation, a bit more encouragement, a bit more relevant information to achieve that that positive outcome. So I think I think it's not I think the values might vary. Where it becomes particularly problematic for all of us is where the underlying assertions of truth are false. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And then <clears throat> yeah, I, I do see that. I uh, I. I'll be honest. I have I have concerns about using truth as a as a, a sort of a yardstick because of inherent difficulties that I see in uh, identifying truth. And I'm afraid I take a sort of million approach to this. That um, you know, ideas of truth uh, to be able, for for any kind of um, official body to say, well, this isn't true, and therefore you can't say it, or therefore you can't have support. It just always reminds me of Galileo and uh, and that type of thing not because i think and i don't say that for the white supremacists because i think that there is some hidden truth claim that you're denying or anything like that i think actually we dismiss the white supremacists purely on value basis you know even if their claim was true we don't want it that's not what an inclusive society is about and we want to produce an inclusive society well i think there's a truth claim there though i, th- I think i think you know we want to produce an inclusive society and I think I think to support that we must believe that that there is equal value in all in all humans, and there seems to be some latent truth claim there. But just to go back to the philosophers, one of the um, so one of the people I've been working with is Fabienne Peter at, at University of Warwick, and she's actually done a she's gone into this question. I mean, she you know she and I and have grappled with this as, as you and I have all over the years. Yeah, and she says, well, okay, it doesn't, it's not all or nothing. It's not kind of absolute relativist free-for-all or ministry of truth. You know, we can distinguish different different kinds of truth claim, and, they, and then we might actually think there could be different regulatory responses to those. So if you say the requirement is everyone must always and only tell the full truth and nothing but the truth, that seems philosophically and practically impossible to maintain that standard. You know, we don't always know what the truth is, even if we're well-intentioned as, as, as regulators or gatekeepers or funders. You know, how could you actually enforce an, a norm which sets such a high standard? But if you go down a few notches, and, and she, she then proposes a more modest norm of avoid obvious falsehoods. Mm-hmm. So, you know, someone says... Um, um, you know, it's raining and the sun is shining, or you know, Britain is geographically, physically linked to mainland Europe, or or um, um, you know, or perhaps quantitative claims about the amount of money that goes to the European Union on a weekly basis, or um, about how many people were present at the presidential inauguration, and so on. You know, there are clear, demonstrable falsehoods which um, perhaps we can all recognise, and it's very hard to find a particular justification for saying they should be um, treated in the same way as maybe the more tentative sort of truth claims in emerging areas of, of science. 
which was which would be the Galileo example. Yeah. No, I I I see exactly the point that you're making. I recognise it as a as a facet of um, uh, social epistemology. Um, I I'm afraid I'm I'm too much of a pragmatist though, and I sort of think, well, what 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 is the ultimate point that we're trying to? Well, you know, what's the ultimate goal that we're trying to achieve in in saying right, this is true and this is false. There's this sort of shades of paternalism in it, I think, which, as you know, I sort of struggle with um, and, uh, you know, and denying the autonomy of other people. I also think when it comes to sort of truth claims, it all depends on the um, the information that's available at the at the time. I mean, if we go to the example of that you gave there of Trump, I don't need someone to tell me that Trump's statement was wrong because I can see it in the in the evidence in the available evidence um but before we get too bogged down in this because actually this is a conversation we could we could do for a while jonathan and, mm. I, and I hope we can at a later point we have been Paul. we've been having it for about, about, about seven years now i think yeah we have we have <laughs> but not in a podcast yeah. um I, w- I want to talk about regulation though because that was also one of the things that you said was yeah. uh, was important for for the purposes of the um uh the application the grant um, now, how how is that measured? I mean, you talked about uh, membership um, of uh, particular um, regulators. There's only two to choose from presently. And um, what is it that you're sort of looking for there? And I suppose ultimately what I've got in mind is this. You know, I might apply to you and say, right, I'm regulated by Ipso. And, you know, to demonstrate my regulatory compliance, I have never been issued with a fine for a serious or systemic breach of the code. And what I might be omitting there is that Ipso has never fined anybody um, for a regulatory breach. Now, I don't I don't want this to turn into attack on uh, Ipso, of course, because, you know, I've done that uh, a lot of times before. But um, what sort of evidence are you looking for then in terms of regulatory compliance? Yeah, yeah, no. So I think I think in a way that's that's another sort of thing that we, you know, that we learned out of the experience of running the emergency grant round um, in the spring, was that it's only it's 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 one factor among several. If, if, if what we're yeah. looking for, to determine is that a particular site has got standards, has, has demonstrably got standards, and I think in my view. Part of having standards is being accountable for the standards. It's not just a sort of self-certifying um, position. Then one of the things that you would look at would be membership of a, a reg- regulatory body. But it's yeah. but not it's not determinative. I think what we yeah. you know we then obviously as you say you would have you know look at the context for that um, both of the, the regulator in question but also other. Other factors that are, that are going on, and also I think the key thing is that the the, the requirements of, of either Ipso or Impress are not they're not totally synonymous with the requirements of our public interest um, definition. So it's, it's never going to tell us everything that we need to know. But it's you know it's a useful it's a you know it's it's positive evidence. It's a step in the right direction. The site wants to show that it has got some ethical standards, but it's not going to tell us everything. Um, and I suppose the final question for me before um, I hand back to Tom, um, something like the the Guardian, uh, for example. Now I know I know this is subject close to your own heart, Jonathan, and feel free not to answer. But um, presumably the Guardian wouldn't qualify for this kind of 
fund and uh, because it's not regulated independently although it it might say otherwise um and it's uh and presumably it's too partisan to to qualify albeit the guardian strikes me as the sort of last bastion of um uh, liberal hope and ideas in this country <laughs> rather a mournful note on which to end uh, uh, <laughs> i am um... I think what might what what I mean look it's a, it's it's a, it's a tricky and possibly even a trick question but I think <laughs> no it wasn't a trick question I know I know but you know what I mean um, uh, it's always open to a funder and I you know I know this because I've done a bit of work over the years with various funding bodies <clears throat> there's two ways that you can make a grant you can make a core grant to an organisation where you feel totally aligned with its way of doing things. And you think, you know, there's no there's no risk here. It's going to meet all of our requirements in full. And then you could give, give a core grant or you could give a project grant to an organisation that met, you know, a sufficient number of your requirements sufficiently well and was able to meet all of them, but only in relation to a specific bit of output or a particular project. So, you know, hypothetically, if The Guardian was running a series of pieces on on the environment and was doing those pieces in a, in a clearly ethical way that met our, our definition of public interest news. And let's take it out, out of the Guardian. You know, imagine a, you know, a similar sort of liberal progressive newspaper with clearly, you know, clear position to the, to the, to the left of centre, but part of its output wasn't actually party political. It was, it was just advancing some other well-recognised public good um, in a fairly objective way. Then in theory that might be something which Pint could support. So you'd say you could support the part, not the whole. But I think if it was, even if there was something very, you know, clearly objective and and and, and empirical about the environment in another publication, but the publication more generally had profound ethical problems, I think it would be harder to see that. So I think it's it's about sort of finding a, a sort of best fit where you think there's a publication that has generally got pretty good standards. That might fail on the impartiality test, then you could, could potentially support them for a specific project. But if a publication generally had low ethical standards and failed the impartiality test, I think you'd be very unlikely to support them. So we've talked a lot uh, about what it is that uh, Pint does and how it goes about that business. And I wonder if I could ask you, Jonathan, just in the last couple of minutes, to say something about why you think it's necessary to have a foundation like Pint doing this job, doing it in a charitable way. And what is it about the media landscape in this country that that makes this necessary? Yeah, I'm, I mean, you know, so you might say one answer to that might be to say, actually, in an ideal world, you wouldn't need this because the market would provide all the kinds of journalism that we want to see. So that would be one answer, and you'd, you'd, you'd point to particular market failures over the last 10 or 15 years, and you might say that's the result of the digital revolution and the fact that social media and search companies have, have taken a vast amount of revenue that once flowed into news organisations. So, that, And I do think that is part of the answer. There is something particular happening at the moment that is putting all public interest journalism providers under enormous pressure not not just 
ones which might have once been markets, funded, i.e. commercial, but also public service broadcasting. As we know, the BBC is also under huge pressure and has to sort of explain why it's appropriate for it to be funded through a license fee in an economy where people are actually also funding um, streaming platforms through subscriptions and so on. So there is a specific kind of, you know, function of now to do with that characteristics of that market failure, where it seems to be necessary to look to other models and essentially charitable models to bring other kinds of funding into the sector. But I think my own view is that even if we were in a much more functional media economy, and you might point to the period in, say, the 1980s, when there were a large number of national newspapers and well-resourced local and regional newspapers and commercial broadcasters, you might say, well, even then there were still problems. There were still communities and and perspectives that were not well-voiced or represented. There were certain kinds of information that weren't out there, certain kinds of investigative journalism that maybe weren't funded. So I actually, I I tend to think there's there's a particular crisis right now which adds urgency to what we're doing. But I kind of think actually a healthy media economy at any time should have a blend of public funding, commercial funding, and I think charitable funding to fill some of those gaps, just as you have in other areas of, of, of our social lives, whether it's sports, you know, the Premier League is incredibly well-funded and, and has got a, an amazing business model, but there's now huge calls for that money to be not just trickled down, but actually, you know, ideally poured down on the, on the lower leagues. Um, you have it in the arts where, you know, we've got we've got loads of money flows into cinema and TV, perhaps, but you still need to have public funding or charitable funding for community theatre groups and so on. So ideally, I think you do want a mixed economy to make sure that you, um, you, you get the right kinds of journalism to the right people um, all the time. Well, that's about all we have time for uh, on the podcast today. Uh, Jonathan Haywood, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you both very much. That was great. That's it for this episode of the Media Law Podcast. We'll be back with our newscast edition next week, where Colette and I will be talking about the Johnny Depp libel trial, the judgment of which is due out beginning of November. Until then, take care, stay safe.